Welcome to the Hope Church Memphis podcast. To learn more about Hope, including our worship opportunities, visit HopeChurchMemphis.com. Today's message comes from Senior Pastor Rufus Smith. So I want to talk uh, today about the mystery of growth, the mystery of growth. We are continuing our series of growth. We're using growth as an acronym of God raising our will to his. And we're using plant life to parallel spiritual life and the lessons that we can learn. Plant life is the most used analogy in the Bible as it relates to spiritual maturity. And so it helps us understand the process and the principles. When I talk about the mystery of growth, I'm not only talking about a mystery that is inexplicable occurrences that defy human understanding. That's the general definition of a mystery. How many of you like mysteries? All right, most of you raised your hand, or many of you did. When I said that, you probably thought of a mystery novel or a mystery game or a mystery television show or a movie, and that's the basic definition of mystery, inexplicable occurrences that defy human understanding. However, I want to talk about another type of mystery of growth here in a moment. There are natural mysteries in nature that are fascinating, that show the awesomeness of God. And I want you to hear here in a second, Dale Skaggs, who is the director of Dixon Gallery and Gardens, and he's been sharing with us throughout this series. And he talks about a ruby-throated hummingbird and a nectar plant that blooms just for it at a certain time of year. Watch this. There's a native buckeye. It has such an important role because when the ruby-throated hummingbird is migrating across North America, it blooms in perfect concert with that bird. When that bird arrives there, this plant has a long tubular flower that only they can get the nectar. <laughs> it's blooming at the same time. So it basically makes a roadmap mm. for this bird to go north. I mean, you got to believe in something. Wow. I, I just can't believe that all this happened by chance, you know? Wow. I love that. In nature, at the, the time of the blooming of this certain plant, this bird gets an internal signal and flies hundreds of miles in order to meet that plant and get its nourishment. That is part of the mystery of nature and the universe. There is another level of mystery, however, that I want to focus on today. And that definition biblically is an explanation that was concealed in the Old Testament is now revealed in the New Testament. That's what the mystery of growth is all about and the kingdom of God. An explanation that was concealed in the Old Testament and is now revealed in the New Covenant. So I want to talk about that aspect of mystery from Mark chapter 4, 26 through 28. I'm going to read it twice for your hearing. Jesus also said the kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground night and day. 
while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crops on its own. First, a leaf blade pushes through, then heads of wheat are formed, and finally, the grain ripens. I want to read it again. Jesus also said the kingdom of God, that's the mystery, is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground night and day while he's asleep or awake. The seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crops on its own. First, a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally, the grain opens. That opens or blooms or ripens. So what is the mystery of of growth and how does that actually occur? It doesn't mean we understand all of it, but it means that what was formerly concealed is now revealed. When the Bible uses the word mystery, <clears throat> it is explaining things to people who are on the inside. So if I'm outside of the kingdom, these kinds of things make little sense. But if I'm inside of the kingdom, then the mystery is more revealed. And so the first thing we learn about this mystery is of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. There is a cooperation between you and God, between me and God. I do my part and then God does his part. The farmer scatters seed. That's human responsibility. And he goes to sleep or whether he's awake night or day, and then the earth sprouts, the Bible says, on its own. That's divine sovereignty. God says, Rufus, you do your part, what you can do, and then I will do my part, divine sovereignty, what you cannot do. It is cooperation with God. Paul picks up this principle because he heard a little gossip in the church of Corinth. They were gossiping about who was the most effective leader or their favorite leader. They were having a discussion between Paul the apostle, Apollos, and Peter. Paul got wind of this and he wrote this correction to them in 1 Corinthians 3. He says this, after all, who is Apollos and who is Paul? We are only God's servant through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it. But it was God who made it grow. It is God who makes it grow. So the apostle says it doesn't really matter who the servant is. God gives you yours to do. He gives me mine to do, and when I do what I've been assigned to do, he has his own rewards for me. That's human responsibility. Paul planted, and then Apollos watered, and Peter watered, but it was God who made it grow or gave the increase. Part of the mystery is me understanding 
human responsibility married to divine sovereignty. Secondly, he says the seed. What did the former plant? He planted seeds. That means figuratively in the spiritual realm, the word of God. That's what the former plants. That's what you and I plant. That's what's been planted into us, the seed of the word of God. I've shown you this before. You have seeds and then you have this full grown tomato plant. How does it get from a little seed to a full grown tomato plant? How does that happen? That happens because there is something inherent in the seed. There is something powerful and innate in the seed. There is nothing wrong with the seed. If the seed is planted and fruit does not happen, it is not the fault of the seed. The word of God is perfect. And so it's not the fault of the seed, the word of God. It means there is a lack of effort on my part. So the farmer scatters the seed. We all believe that the word of God is untainted and unmixed uh, with error in its original autograph. It's divine in its origin. It's inspired in its totality. It's inexhaustible in its adequacy. It's regenerative in its power. It's personal in its application. It's comforting and convicting to the soul. There is nothing wrong with the seed. In fact, Isaiah reminds us of this in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For the heavens are as high, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud or bloom, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. There is nothing wrong with the seed. There is something wrong with my effort and my relationship with the seed or the word of God. But where did the farmer plant the seed? On the soil. That's where I want to dwell, and then I'll take my seed. The soil is the earth ground. The soil is the heart. The soil is that which is in me. Basically, if I get the soil right, then growth will happen gradually and continuously over time because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Repeat, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. When I get that right, then mysteriously, I begin to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and am more able to handle the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the ebbs and flows of life. So it's the heart, it's the soil. Let's listen to Dr. Chris Cooper talk a little bit about the soil. Watch this. What are some of the soil conditions here that you wouldn't have to be concerned about in other areas of the country or region? All right, so here in Memphis, we actually have good soils. Uh, they're called loss soils. Uh, they're wind deposit soils down on the Mississippi River, right? They came uh, from up north. 
So it has a lot of, you know, silt in it, like sandy silt. Uh, so it's real conducive uh, to growing plants. Uh, if we didn't cut our grasses anymore, our soils would, of course, grow a lot of trees. Mm. If you look at Memphis, if you've ever been in a plane, of course, and flown over oh, Memphis, yes. you see the density of trees in Memphis, right? That's because those trees, which are oak trees for the most part, love our huh. soils, right? But the thing about our soils is this, they do have a lot of clay in them, okay? That clay has to be broken up by adding compost or organic material to the soil so that the plant roots are able to take up moisture and nutrients. Mm. So yeah, we always, you know, um, people will call and say, oh, I hate all of this clay soil. Okay, but you need clay soil yeah. because again, clay is gonna hold water and nutrients, but that clay soil has to be broken down by adding organic material to it to allow those plant roots to get deeper to get the nutrients and the moisture that it needs. So we actually have good soils, but of course you just have to apply organic matter to it to break it down. And that's a nice botanist way of talking about manure. <laughs> organic matter, compost, right? It doesn't smell good. And things that happen to us in life don't feel good, but the clay in our hearts needs to be tilled, to be composted so that we can grow. That's, that's what the Bible is saying. The soil needs to be cultivated, and when our hearts are cultivated, then growth will happen mysteriously over time, gradually, and consistently. How many of you like compost, smell, fertilizer? Of course not. And I don't like that stuff in my life either. But it's necessary in order to break up the hard clay of heart. So these five things about the heart, and I'll, I'll take my seat, my other seat. Number one, a changed heart. I've got to have a changed heart. That's where it all begins, the call to salvation. Ezekiel says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of flesh. I will take the heart of stone or clay out of your flesh and then give you a heart of flesh, something that is more malleable, something that uh, can be softened. That's what he wants to give us. It all starts with a changed heart. If you are listening to me today, and you came to this without Christ, without hope, without the assurance of eternal life, we want you to know that God the Father had you in mind when he sent Jesus to the cross. And every sin that you've ever committed, I've ever committed, past, present, and future, has been nailed to the cross. And he who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. So wherever you are, you can tell God the Father, I'm believing in Jesus Christ and a changed heart, eternal life will begin for you. And we'll help you as you grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not be alone, but it all starts with a changed heart. Me surrendering my way to his way, my thoughts to his thoughts. Once I do that, then it takes a teachable heart, a teachable heart. I need to learn other things that I did not know, counterintuitive things. Matthew said it this way, come to me, Jesus said, 
All you who labor and are heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Now take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's the key. Learn from me. That's teachability, a teachable heart. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find an unusual rest in your soul. So my heart has to be teachable. That's what he wants to do for you and I. And being teachable means that sometimes it's counterintuitive to what I would normally do. Jesus taught men to live by dying. He taught them to hold on by letting go. He taught us to find our lives by losing them. He taught us to gain by giving. He taught us to get blessings even when people curse us. It is a different way of living. We have to have a teachable heart. I remember when I was in uh, business before I went into the pastorate that I was working in a construction job at a certain house in Houston, Texas. And um, I had my guys there. I was an interior contractor painting and staining and uh, wallpapering, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a very nice house that we had the job in. But the owner of the house and the general contractor um, were in conflict. And that uh, filtered down to us. And so one day the owner came back. He was irate, irate, and he cussed out the entire crew and said, get out of my house. He didn't curse them out. He cussed them out, if you know the difference. And I mean, explicative this, explicative that, explicative this. It took us about 30 minutes for us to leave and get out plumbers, get out electricians, get out everybody. And uh, so I collected everything, told our guys, let's go. I was leaving. And then I had a knock on my window in my truck. He asked me to roll the window down. I did. And he asked me this unusual question. He said, do you go to church? I said, yes, sir. He said, that's why you didn't say anything back to me? I said, yes, sir. He said, hmm, okay. Uh, you come back. You can finish the job. And I had the privilege to finish the job. That man refer 10 or 11 more jobs to me over the next year because I didn't say anything back. Oh, but you got to know the difference. Do you know how hard it was for me not to say anything? I was raised in a culture that if you curse me, I'm going to curse you back. You hit me, I'm going to hit you back. I'm not going to show weakness that way. And I had to bite my tongue, dig my fingernails in my skin, not to say anything back to him. But I didn't. By the grace of God. That's what Jesus meant. Rufus, learn from me. Because he said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And say all manner evil against you falsely. And that's learning from him. I certainly didn't get it from me. What do you need to be more teachable about in your own hearts? Because whatever that is, it helps the fruit to sprout. If I have a changed heart, if I have a teachable heart, then it enables me to grow in new ways. Because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Here's a third one. I need a pursuing godliness heart, not a perfection heart. 
None of us are perfect or will be, but I need to pursue godliness, chase godliness, run after godliness. When the Bible says David was a man who pursued God's heart after God's heart, it means he chased his heart. Didn't mean he didn't fail, but when he failed, he repented big. When he failed, he repented and got up. So it's a pursuing heart. What are you chasing after? What are you pursuing? What is your basic direction? And then it's a resilient heart. I have a changed heart. I have a teachable heart. I have a pursuing godliness heart. I have a resilient heart as the clay is being broken down. That resilience means that I get up after a fall. It means I don't throw in the towel or wave the white flag or surrender. A resilient heart bounces back after failure. I love this story. I want to read it. The man who failed 10,000 times. Al, as he was called when he was a child, first learned failure from his daddy, who seldom brought home a paycheck. He watched his mother slowly decline as his family moved toward destitution. And as if that was not enough, scarlet fever rendered little Al almost deaf. Maybe that's why he was such a troublemaker at school, labeled by his teacher as unreachable. So his mother yanked him out of school, and he would forever remain a fifth grade dropout. At age 12, he was quite the little entrepreneur, starting businesses, but having them to fall apart. But his repeated failures were training grounds. When he was 20 years old, Al headed to Boston in the city of academic powerhouses. This self-taught grade school dropout began to invent new technologies, but academic professors saw his ideas as too futuristic. In fact, once he had invented a machine that could quickly count votes at the ballot box, but the Massachusetts legislature rejected that concept which of course today is the norm. So Al headed to New York. And there he invented a couple of technologies that netted him about $140,000. And since he felt more successful, he decided to marry. He married Mary, who was 16 years old at the time. That was legal. His death, her death at age 29, however, was devastating and continued a long string of sorrows. But he started another laboratory in New Jersey. And over the next 60 years, this fifth grade dropout led a technological revolution that would turn America into an economic juggernaut. He was in his 80s when he applied for his last patent, his 1093rd patent. By now, you may recognize Al as Thomas Alva Edison. Thomas Alva Edison, the inventor of the light bulb, the phonograph, the motion picture, and so many other modern inventions. Arguably, he's history's most prodigious inventor. Yet, we would be wrong to celebrate his successes without remembering his many, many, many failures. In fact, when someone asked him about his missteps, his famous reply was this, 
I have not failed 10,000 times. I've successfully found 10,000 ways that will not work. I like that. I repeat, I have not failed 10,000 times. I've successfully found 10,000 ways that will not work. In fact, his creations came from exhausting hours of repeated experiments that produced repeated failures, but also revealed new observations that led to new inventions. Perhaps you feel like you're not growing spiritually. So it behooves us to take a lesson from the former in Mark chapter 4. Get the soul of the heart right and then go to sleep at night. Get the soul of the heart right and then I can go to sleep at night and growth will occur gradually and consistently over time. Make every effort to do your human responsibility and then relax in God the Father's divine sovereignty. He will do what you and I cannot do. Forget about your inadequacies and lean on his adequacy. As someone has well said, failure is a detour in the road to spiritual maturity, not a dead-end street. Repeat, failure is a detour on the road of spiritual maturity. It is not a dead-end street. So have a resilient heart, and when you fail, get up. And then lastly, we need a strengthened heart. This heart is strengthened by stress and tests. Nobody likes it, but we need a strengthened heart. When our heart is tested through stress, it makes us stronger and growth will occur. Psalm 119.67 and verse 71, and I close. Before I went, was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In fact, the psalmist went on to say, it is good for me that I was afflicted so that I may learn your statutes. Hmm. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to admit that that's the truth. Before I was afflicted, before God would cause stress and tests in my life, I had a tendency to take his goodness for granted and get lax spiritually. But in affliction, I keep more closely his word. In fact, the psalmist went on to say, it's good for me. Now, it took me a while to get that. But it's good for me that I'm afflicted. Some of you can lift transcripts from your own life and you can say like the psalmist, God, that is right. I don't want to go through it again, but that was good for me because now I pay more attention to learning your statutes. So when I have a cultivated heart, then growth happens mysteriously, constantly over time. Because after all, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Hey, let's pray together. Ah, oh, gracious God, our Father, we, 
We ask that you would help us to recognize afresh our human responsibility, cooperating with your divine sovereignty in the mystery of growth. Thank you for inside information giving us as Jesus followers to remind us that the mystery of the kingdom, the mystery of growth was concealed in the Old Testament, but it's now been revealed in the New Testament. Thank you for the seed, your word, that's inherently powerful, nothing wrong with it. When we fail to grow, it's something wrong with our effort. So we pray that you would help us to till the soil of our hearts. Thank you for a changed heart. Thank you for a teachable heart. And remind us of where we need to be taught. Some area that is counterintuitive to our flesh, our natural way of handling things. We pray that you would help us learn from your son on how to live life. And we thank you for a pursuing godliness heart, not perfection, but direction. And for a resilient heart, that someone who's listening would not give up and recognize that failure is not a detour in spiritual maturity. It's not a dead end. And then would you help us to have a strengthened heart through stress and tests? Help us to look on what you're allowing to happen to us that feels unpleasant, but you're doing it so that ultimately we could say like the psalmist, it was good for me that I was afflicted because now I have a closer walk relationship with the God of the universe. It's in your name that we pray and praise you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hope Church Memphis podcast. I'm Daniel Openheisen, musical worship director at Hope. If you were encouraged by today's message, make sure to hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience previous messages, videos, and our live worship experience, visit us online at hopechurchmemphis.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Again, thanks for listening to the Hope Church Memphis podcast.